kids uh, for Children's Church. I just want to want to put in a plug again for Mega Camp that we're doing this year. This is a great opportunity to reach kids through a fantastic camp, a sports camp up at uh, up at the uh, National Volleyball Center in Century High School. So if you have any inclination to want to reach out to kids this summer, I want to encourage you to be at that meeting on the 31st and find out about how you could be involved in that. Um, again, I think it's a, a great opportunity to reach out to kids. So... My opening illustration, I'm going to demonstrate a little bit of my age here. You see, there used to be a day when we received news through a newspaper or even a magazine. And you'd look at it maybe daily or perhaps weekly. But the, the stories in there had to do with advances in social issues, technology, research. And they were more willing to take some time and vet their information, I think, instead of just getting it out right away as I think our electric age. Uh, and, and, and folks, I'm not, don't hear me saying I'm longing for the good old days. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying it was a different process, a, a different time. But in 1992, Time Magazine, everybody remember Time Magazine? Time Magazine put out an issue where the main topic was Men and women. And the fact that they're different. Men and women are different. After years of social experimentation, aggressive feminism, stating there's no difference between men and women. It's just socialization. Well, I, research done by UCLA came back saying, no, the data says something different. It's not just a difference in anatomy, a difference in development, a difference in the chemical hormones and how they're released into the body. That means a difference in behavior, how we interact with things like toys or, or objects, difference in the thought process. And while human beings do have essentially a lot of the same uh, needs and there are many things that are the same between the sexes, there are things about our makeup that are different and distinct. And the biblical worldview holds us up as good. Says that this is a glorious thing, actually. And even our pop culture at times still acknowledges it. The differences between men and women. Unfortunately, sometimes it, it comes at the expense of, in a, like a sitcom, at the expense of the father of the family, who's portrayed as a buffoon, someone who's socially tone-deaf, and out of touch with reality. However, there is a tendency to still try and blur the lines between the sexes, whether that's fashion, hairdos, or even our, the current issues of whether we're going to allow same sexes to use the same bathroom. I mean, sexes, different sexes use the same bathroom. Again, saying it's all the same, it doesn't matter. It does matter. It matters to the God who made us. It, it matters on how he called us to play roles as men and women and live together and not to blur those lines even in worship. And, call, and Paul calls the Corinthians to wrestle with this issue and calls us to wrestle with this issue today as well. So if you have your Bibles, 
you can open them up to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 2 through 16. If you've been with us, we've been going through this series through the letter of 1 Corinthians. So as we come to this part of the letter, here's what Paul will say. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 through 16. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is man. The head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her, her hair cut off. And if this is a disgrace for the woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought to ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor man independent of woman. For woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of, of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. You know, the good news this week is I'm not talking about food sacrificed to idols. So we got that going for us, which is nice. Confession, it is one of the more challenging passages to preach, but it is God's word. And it's here for a reason, and it's here for our good. So before we enter into looking more deeply into it, let me pray for us. Lord, indeed, we do confess that this is your word, and it does challenge us. And maybe in things we don't fully understand. But it is here for us, and we know you want to use it to be glorified in your people, and we know it's here for our good. So, Lord, would you take your word now and infuse it into our hearts. Help us to respond to you in obedience and not reject it because you want to use it, Lord, indeed, for your glory and to further your kingdom and for our good. Help us to see that today as we look into your word. Jesus, it's in your name I pray these things. Amen. Now, the truth of the matter is this passage can easily be misconstrued as viewing women as second-class human beings or even second-class in the kingdom. It's not true. God says in the beginning, even in Genesis, that men and women are created in His image. Genesis 1, 
chapter 27. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And even in Christ Jesus, there is an equality there. Galatians chapter 3, verse 28. says, Neither is there Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. Paul gladly recognizes the value and essence before in the sight of God between men and women. But there still is a specific role in which men and women are called to play, and it dates back to creation. And while we who put our faith in Christ are a new creation, if you will, God gives a distinction between men and women that ought not to be dismissed or disregarded. So Paul starts out on this new subject matter in his letter with what I call a declaration of headship. A declaration of headship. Verses 2 and 3 again. I praise you for remembering me and everything for holding to the traditions which I passed on to you. But I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Paul introduces this concept of headship, naming three categories. Christ as the head of man. Man as the head of woman. God as the head of Christ. The word for head there is a word called kephale. And it can mean your physical head, but it can also have that metaphorical meaning of someone who is in charge, who is an authority. And we're going to see both of those meanings here in this passage. But just to kind of reemphasize this, Paul will use in his letter Ephesians chapter 5, verses 23 through 20, 22 through 23, he'll say, Wives, submit to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. There's an interplay between these two meanings, the physical head and that of the role of authority. But the principle, honestly, that Paul is is focusing on here is the principle of authority and submission. It's something we all need to come to terms with. See, all of us are under authority of some sort whether we're male or female. And all authority comes from God. And we need to submit to that authority as we would submit unto God. And what Paul is driving at in this passage is God has called men to have headship or authority over the family, as in Ephesians 5 or Colossians 3 or 1 Peter 3, but also in the church as he points out in 1 Timothy 2, verses 15, 11 through 15, 1 Timothy uh, chapter 3, and Titus 1, 6 through 9, talking about elders who are men. It does not mean women are lesser or of lesser value, but they're a, they have a different role. But here's the truth. We need women. And without women, the church would be lesser, just as the church would be lesser without men. In the, in 
Even Paul's own letter, he talks about deaconesses and women like Lydia and Priscilla and the widows who would serve the saints. But again, men and women are called to play different roles. Because it is God who gives authority. Paul calls for what I would call a display of headship in worship. Look at verses uh, 4 through 6. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It's the same as having her head shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, she might as well have her head, her hair cut off. But if it is a disgrace for the woman to have her hair cut off, her head is shaved, or her head is shaved, then she should cover her head. Now this may seem like a, a rather strange thing for Paul to say. That's true in our own society. We do ask men actually to remove their hats, right? At moments of prayer or even the uh, singing of the national anthem out of respect. But here in verse 4, Paul's concern is in the arena of public worship. A man who is praying or prophesying with his head covered. Now we're not sure exactly what that is. Was it a hat? Was it a veil? Was it a shawl? But whatever it is, Paul's saying it dishonors his head or his authority. Who is Christ? By doing so, in fact, he'll say a little bit later on in verse 7, it actually obscures Christ. Because man is the image and glory of God. But here's the, the cultural thing that's going on here. You see, in this Corinthian culture, this Roman culture, if you will, for a man to wear something on his head as he prays was to actually be a, be a sign of submission, which honestly was given to women to wear. Women would wear a hat or a scarf or something to denote that they are under the submission of the man who cared for them. They were under their authority. So for a man to do that, it was a strange thing. It would kind of be like if I walked in here with one of the hats that the women wear at the Kentucky Derby. It would be kind of like, what is that about? That's what Paul is saying. It's It doesn't make sense in this culture. And we're going to talk a little bit about maybe the mixing of two cultures here in a few minutes, but that's what's going on here. It doesn't make sense for that. On the other hand, the head covering for a woman expressed her femininity, her submission to male leadership. And most women did that when they walked out in public, when they left the house. They had something on their head to denote that submission. Apparently there were women who were not covering their heads in worship services during corporate worship. And it was seen as expressing their independence from authority or even usurping that authority. It was dishonoring their head, who God says is man. And that would come in the form of a relationship with your husband or your father or even in, in, East, in uh, Oriental culture, if your father had died, it might fall upon the role of the older brother or in the church, the elders or the pastors of the church. But ultimately, 
It was dishonoring God. Paul goes on and kind of pushes the envelope here and suggests if this is how a woman wanted to do business, she had to just, then just go all the way and just shave her head to be like a man, if you will. And if that's seen as a disgrace, which the society around her would see, then, then, do, then go ahead and put your head covering back on. You see, women were allowed to pray and prophesy in the church, but they were to do so in a manner honoring the male leadership in their lives and in the church. God had appointed men as the authority and the leaders of the church. But this is not just for the church. Apparently the onlookers were not just human, but a heavenly audience. A heavenly audience. And these things need to be considered because glory is displayed in headship. Verses uh, 7 through 10. A man ought not cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But a woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created from woman, but woman for man. For this reason that a man ought to have for this reason that a woman ought to have authority over her own head because of the angels. Now here's here's the scenario that's probably going on in the church. Remember, the Corinthian church is a, is, a, is a church made up of both Jews and Gentiles. And the Jewish men were taught by the rabbis, not by Scripture, that when they prayed, they ought to cover their head. They ought to take their prayer shawl or their yarmulke and put it on and and... So, so that as a sign of submission to God. And that's probably coming out of the thought of what happened in Exodus chapter 33, where Moses says to God, show me your glory. And God puts him in the cleft of a, of a rock and says, I, you can't see me completely, but I'll let my glory pass by. And after that, Moses came down from Mount Sinai, and he was literally glowing. Literally glowing. And so in the next chapter, 34, Moses puts on a veil, if you will, to to uh, kind of shield the people from the glow of God's glory, but also to kind of shield them from the fact that actually that glory was starting to fade. You see, the thought was, well, if Moses, who was in God's presence, put on a veil, we ought to as well. But that's not what the Scripture was teaching. And I think Paul actually in the second letter to the Corinthians corrects this concept as he says in chapter 3, verse 13, We are not like Moses, who would put on a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at it while the radiance was fading away. Later on in verse 16 he says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Paul is saying, I want you to see that man is the glory of God. And woman is the glory of man. And so he drills down into actually what is the, ex, uh, the Genesis chapter 2 narrative. In that God makes Adam first. He makes him out of the dust. As we see in chapter 2 verse 7. And by the way, the word for dust in Hebrew is Adama, to make 
Adam. God fashions him, forms him out of the dust, and then he breathes life into him, makes him a living being. He places him in the garden to tend it, to name all the animals. He is made in the image of God because God gives him dominion over creation. Whatever the man names an animal, a creature, that becomes his name. He is God's image there to represent the glory and the majesty of God, to reflect His glory. He is set apart by in creation. And by the way, folks, that's the reason why we value human beings more than we value animals, because we are God's crown of creation. We are made in His image. But, as the Scripture says, there was no suitable helper found for Him, and it's not good for man to be alone. God looks around the animal kingdom. There's nobody that's going to meet Adam's needs as he needs to. So God performs the first Mayo Clinic surgery. Gives him his supernatural anesthetic. Opens him up. Pulls out a rib. And fashions a woman. Fashions it out of his rib. And she is the glory of man because she comes from man. And Adam's response to this glorious creation is a celebration and it's poetry. And he says in verse 23 of chapter 2 of Genesis, Now this is, listen, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You see that? She shall be called woman because she'll be taken out of man. The Hebrew is almost the same. She shall be called Isha, which means woman, because she was taken out of Ish, man. It's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious thing. And when the man looks at the woman, he sees a glorious Reflection of himself, which is also a reflection of God. They are similar and yet beautifully different. And the point is that this is a glorious creation. This is not here to denigrate women. It's a glorious thing. And yet, again, to point out that creation order matters. Man was made first. And woman was created for man, not man, for woman. And God made men to have authority over women. It's his structure to this onlooking audience of heavenly beings to look at what God has done. And Paul is calling for that creation order to be expressed rightly. Angels who look on these things. This is what Paul will say in his letter to the Ephesians, chapter 3, verses 10 through 11. Talking about God's intent. His intent that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities of the heavenly, in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ our Lord. You see, the saved people of God 
should reflect rightly to the angelic beings what God's purpose was, what the right created order should look like to onlooking angels. And God is honored before the angels when we honor His created order and authority structure. But again, this is not to say that men are more valuable than women. It's certainly not independent of women. Because headship does not negate interdependence. Look at verses 11 and 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord a man is not, in, excuse me, in the, in the Lord woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For a woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Paul brings balance. He says, yes, woman originally came from man, but every man thereafter is born of woman. We are not independent of each other, and we are less without each other. We are less without each other. I'm going to tell you, my wife makes me a better man, a better father, a better pastor. Because I pass before her all the ideas that I, I preach before I, I step out there. And she helps me see my blind spots, the blind edges. As well as the women who, who serve with me in the office, they point out to things to me that as a man I just am clueless about. You, you can thank the ladies in the office for the candy bars. Alright, ladies, for last week. Because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have thought twice about it. But we need each other. We are not independent of each other. In fact, God has given us to each other because every good and perfect gift is from Him. And, and it ultimately says everything comes from God at the ver end of verse 12. And listen to this. You ladies who give birth to a man-child, if you will, you have an opportunity in the formative years to shape him toward the kingdom of God just from our own church history. We can talk about John and Charles Wesley, who were profoundly affected by their own mother. Or we want a biblical illustration, we can talk about Timothy, whose faith was shaped by his grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice. So you have the opportunity to shape a man for the kingdom of God. Man is not independent of woman. And yet with this interdependence, again, there is a creation order, a headship in marriage and in the church. And that does not mean a lording over. Actually, it's a call for men to serve, to protect, to be an over-umbrella, to love them, to give yourself up, if you will, for your wife, as in Ephesians 5.25 talks about. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So the man ought to do the same for his wife. That is very Christ-like. But Paul does not want headship to be negated or disregarded. And so now he goes on to talk about how headship is on display in nature. Look at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? 
Does not the very nature of things teach you that a man has, if a man has long hair, it is a, it is a, it is a disgrace to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her long hair is given to her as a covering. Again, Paul's argument is rooted in what he calls the nature of things, which can mean two things. It can be actually nature, how our bodies biologically work, or in the, in, uh, the instinct of social norms. So if we start with just the natural standpoint, how biology works, it's true that women just tend to naturally grow longer hair than men. If you've got a man and a woman sitting there, you know, growing their hair for, for six months, the woman will end up having longer hair. Because men have testosterone. And testosterone does something. It, it starts to impede. It, hair growth is kind of in, in three phases. You know, the, the initial growth of it, and then it rests. And then there's a third phase, which men, I think, incur more than, uh, than women, in that of loss. And so, you know, again, you'll have a man and a woman growing their hair at the for the same period of time, and the woman's hair will be longer. The man's testosterone will um, impede the growth and probably bring loss eventually for some men, while women, their estrogen, keeps that hair growing. Women tend to have longer hair than men just naturally. But then if we talk about the instincts or the norms of, of social things, Women's hair being longer just seems to be normal in society. In Roman culture, it was thought for a man to be effeminate or even a homosexual if he, had, he grew out his hair. And in ancient images, it really does attest that normally women have longer hair than men. That's just kind of the social norms of, of society. I mean, there are exceptions out there, but... And have we ever made this mistake yourself and it's kind of embarrassing right you come up to a man who has long hair and you think he's a woman it's like oh sorry or a woman whose hair is so short you think that it's a man or a young boy it's embarrassing but that instinct is born out of our social norms again there are some even biblical exceptions if you're if you're familiar with the concept of the nazarite a person who would not cut their hair for a long period but be dedicated to God, he also would not eat of anything of the grapes or, or anything uh, that was alcoholic, at the end of the time would, would shave their head. But for the most part, short hair denotes masculinity. However, Paul notes that for women, and their natural long hair is a covering. God has given an expression to this sign of being an authority in their hair. Paul even calls it their glory. And it's a beautiful expression of femininity and submission. And to cover your head was to complete what God had, ex had already expressed in his design. Because the natural covering that he has given women. Now, kind of as we get to the end of this, the application, let me tell you the last thing I'm looking to do is set up regulations about hair length or style. Nor am I suggesting that women should return to
to head coverings. Because I don't think it would mean to our society what it meant to that society. If that was your conviction as a woman, I would support you. If you're looking to do that with your whole heart before the Lord. But I think we can ask the question about our own appearance sometimes. And just think about this. It's, some, it's something I think is worth bringing before the Lord, asking the question, saying, Lord, is my appearance expressing the role that you have given me? I think it's a good thing to ask. Because all of us in our appearance are expressing something. What are we expressing? But, you know, we need to get beyond appearances, because appearances can be deceiving. I think we need to ask, ultimately, where is our heart at? Are we truly embracing the role that God has called us to play? As a man, you know what? You can have your hair cut nice and neat, high and tight. But you can abandon the call He has given you. Abandon the responsibility to be the head and authority of your family, for spiritual leadership, for care of your wife, your children, to to protect them. And ask the question, are you truly submitted even to Christ and the leadership of the church, which you're called to help lead and to serve? Or are you just going to let your wife do that? That's what women do. Ultimately, you're going to be held accountable for that. And a woman can have the most beautiful, long, flowing hair down her back as a, quote, sign of authority, if you will. But her heart can be in total rebellion against the authority that's been put over her in the form of her husband or her father or pastor or elder. Are you seeking to usurp or ignore that leadership, that headship that's been put over you? You will be held accountable. How you respond to that leadership? Because ultimately you're responding to the Lord. Now here's the truth, folks. Here's the truth. This is a tough passage. This is a tough passage. Because it calls us to submit to another who is probably far from perfect. Far from perfect. And Paul understands that. But he still challenges us. Look at verse 16. Because headship is supported by the churches. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. Paul says, look, if you're looking to be contentious about this, the other churches aren't going to have any different practice. None of the other apostles are going to have a different practice. And God is the one who gave this word to us. And He has no other practice. But as we look at this, I think we have to ask the question, as I look at this, am I looking for exceptions? Am I looking for reasons not to obey this? And I'm not talking about submitting to sin or abuse, but I'm talking about submitting to the authority that God has placed over you. And any authority that God has placed over you will be flawed. It will be. But do we trust that God is big enough to even work through that imperfect authority? And I just want to share shortly one of my stories. It's not in marriage, 
but it is under the submission of authority. I have served under two senior pastors as an associate pastor where I had to submit to their authority about some decisions or directions that they were going in ways I thought, I'm not sure this is right. I'm not sure that this is good. But to trust that God is in charge of that. And I will tell you, I'm not going to go into the gritty details, but I'm going to tell you, God actually used that in my life to prepare me to one day be a senior pastor. And some of it I go, man, I'm not going to do it that way. But some of it it made me learn, like, you know what? They had some insight I didn't have at the time. And that was good and wise and right. So trust that God can use even imperfect authority to get us where we need to be. But God has created men and women. He's created them different. He's created them different to reflect His glory. So will we play the role that God has called us to play? Will we submit to the authority that God places over us? Will we step up in the leadership place that we're supposed to play? To do so takes an act of faith. But it's also a place where you can see God's hand visible. And He does it for our good. He does it for our protection. And He does it so that His glory will be displayed in His people. And that's the hope we move into as we would seek to obey Him. Let me pray for us and then I'll have the worship team come and close us. So Lord, again, this is a challenging word and we confess it. And Lord, where we need to trust you and in, in moments even not lean on our own understanding, would you give us grace to do that? But Lord, we know that um, you love us, that you work all things for the good for those who love you or are called according to your purposes. And we want to obey. We want to obey. So we confess that we, you are God and we are not. And we want to trust your word, your judgment, and your wisdom. To trust you in every way. Not to lean on our own understanding. In all our ways acknowledge you. And know that you'll direct our paths. Lord Jesus, in your name I pray these things. Amen.